Welcome to our worship service. It's good to be with you. Last Sunday in our exposition of John 14, we discovered that the disciples were troubled in their hearts because of some of the revelations that Jesus made during the Last Supper. The most troubling of these revelations was that they were about to be separated from Jesus physically because He was about to be arrested, crucified, killed, and glorified. Chapter 13, verses 31 through 33. Now, it's important that we understand that Jesus had previously mentioned what would happen to Him. He had told them several times that He would be leaving them and that He would be going to the cross. He had illustrated the gospel to them on a number of occasions, why He had come. And so He had given them forewarning what was to come. But bottom line is they were unwilling to accept those teachings from Him because those teachings from Him did not square with their singular, one-dimensional view of Messiah. They, like most Jews, were watching and waiting for a physical deliverer, one who would save them from the Romans, and not a spiritual deliverer who would save them from their sins. And we know according to Scripture and according to the testimony of Jesus, He is both. He is a physical deliverer and He is a spiritual deliverer. And, and He came the first pass to save people spiritually, to deliver them spiritually. And the second pass, the second coming, the second advent, which is His return, which will be hopefully in the near future... That will be the moment where he is a physical deliverer and he will establish his kingdom and defeat his enemies and those things. And one of the things that's a guarantee on his second coming is his first coming. If he came by supernatural means the first time, the immaculate conception and these sorts of things, which are reality and true, then we can trust that he will return, that he will come through supernatural means again. And so that, that will be quite a day. Now, the disciples were, however, starting to finally get the picture, you know, that he had come to die, and that was his, his express primary purpose, and they began to realize, obviously, that the hour of his death had now arrived. So it was starting to click for them at this point, but it was a tough pill to swallow because they had that militaristic deliverer, physical deliverer view of Messiah, and so that was... I mean, if you're taught that your whole life as a, as a little bitty baby all the way up into adulthood, it's going to be hard to shake those beliefs. And uh, they had that belief, and so even though they were dealing with reality here in a sense and under, kind of understanding what was going to transpire, it was just very, very difficult because of that upbringing and that, that theology that they, they held on to. And, and I think the bigger issue for them was the fact that they'd been with Jesus in His physical presence for three years straight. If you spend uh, a single minute with Jesus, you'll realize He's different. You spend a year with Him, uh, you're going to grow in your affection with Him uh, to a, a level that's just unprecedented. You spend three years with Him straight, being loved perfectly, cared for perfectly, instructed perfectly, and, and just the perfection of who He is. None of us have, through any other person, spouse or friend, have ever experienced that kind of pure, unconditional, accepting love that Jesus has. And these guys had it. But just imagine being with Him and being subjected to, to all the goodness of Jesus, His perfections, for three years straight. Can you imagine now He's going to leave? And I think that their upbringing, their theology, and the fact that they'd been with Him and had such wonderful experiences with Him, it was just debilitating when they began to ponder that He was going to leave. It, it literally terrified them. When he said the hour of my death had come and these things, now at the Last Supper, I mean, it, it began to terrify them. 
And quite frankly, some of them were thinking, we have basically left everything behind to follow you. What, is, what are the implications for us? If you leave, what does that mean for us? Does this thing end? What will happen next? And so they had all of these thoughts spinning around in their minds, and their hearts were broken, and they were sad and terrified. And, and in an effort to comfort them, in an effort to prepare them for what lies ahead, Jesus issues a series of promises. And last Sunday, we looked at the first promise, which is the promise of His spiritual presence. Verse 1, although Jesus was leaving them physically, He would remain with them and be in them spiritually through the sent Helper, the Holy Spirit, right? Verses 16 and 17, I'm sending you a Helper. He will manifest to believers in a special way my spiritual presence. So I'm leaving you physically, but I will still be with you. You will realize that when this sent helper comes. It really is the task of the Holy Spirit to make true believers aware of Jesus' comforting spiritual presence. It's one of the things that the Spirit does. Yes, He regenerates hearts and, and does a lot of things, implants the gifts of faith and repentance and these sorts of things. He, he teaches and directs the people of God. He does a lot of stuff. He reveals truth and opens our eyes. But one of the great tasks of His is to reveal the spiritual presence of Jesus in a way that is just unique and special. But this morning, we're going to look at the next promise in the sequence, and it is the promise of a prepared place. Please take your Bibles and turn to John 14. We will be focusing on verses 2 through 4. So let's pick it up at verse 2a. Verse 2a, and, and I want you to keep in mind, there are no chapter titles or breaks in this gospel. These are consecutive teachings over many days or what have you, and, and so this whole experience in the upper room, this is just, there's no pause here. Jesus just keeps going, and it's tough to capture the essence of that because we have to break every week and don't keep going through the text. And so Jesus is continuing to speak to them. There's no, we had a pause because we do this every Sunday, but there's no pause with Jesus. He's continuing to speak with them as he was last week. And we look at it in 2a, and this is what he says next. In my Father's house are many rooms. Here, Jesus briefly identifies or describes where he came from. He came from the Father's house, the Father's presence. He briefly describes where He came from, where He will soon return to, the Father's house, and where His disciples will one day be. My Father's house is just a metaphor for the dwelling place of God. And Jesus was not in this text pointing to the temple in Jerusalem, which was thought of as a dwelling place of God on earth. He was not pointing to the temple or any sort of physical building or place where you might find God on earth. He wasn't speaking to that at all. He was pointing to the true house of God, God's eternal dwelling place, which the Bible identifies as heaven. Heaven. And this would be the third heaven, because there's actually three. You've got the sky, you've got space, and then you've got this realm. He is speaking of the third heaven, and that is the, the domain, the abode, the dwelling place of God Himself. So my Father's house 
is simply a metaphor for heaven. Gerald uh, Bourchet gives a, a solid warning here, however, which I think is relevant to us. He wrote, We must be careful not to visualize God in some earth-like place. Because when you see the text and hear Jesus say, my father's house, immediately what do you think of? You think of a house, probably a really big one, probably larger than Donald Trump's, probably a lot more gold and a lot more people or angels there. But that's what we envision, right? But we need to be careful not to envision it in this way, because that's not what it is. He says, since we are bound by space-time limitations in all our thinking, we must not limit our concept of God's domain to something like a three-story universe where heaven as the dwelling place of God is simply up. And that's typically what we think, right? Well, when we think of God and heaven, we think of up. Sometimes we pray with our faces facing up. We're thinking up, he says. And then he says this, the tea, I love this, the teacups of our thinking and language have not yet approached the capacity of holding the ocean of divine truth. (laughs) He says, the domain of God is certainly beyond our finite thinking. He says, the best we can do is describe God's domain in metaphors. And he says, that is exactly what Jesus, the agent of God, did for his disciples here. So, does God dwell in a heavenly house? It looks like our house, but a lot bigger and a lot nicer? No. But it's a metaphor to describe that God actually has an abode, a place where he dwells, and he's dwelt for all eternity. And that does not take away from his omnipresence. He is everywhere. But he does have a literal dwelling place. And Jesus says to relate to the disciples, my father's house. And so they're thinking of a place, a locale. And it's okay to think of it like that, but let's not reduce it down to a church building or your house or my house or a really fancy palatial house out in Del Rio or the White House or any other house. It's way beyond any of that. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. You can't even, with our finite minds, imagine what it is like there. And he actually went there and saw it, and he could not speak of it. He simply says it's beyond anything you could ever conjure. And believe me, our culture has a lot of views of what heaven is like. Heaven has been secularized to a great degree, which is very tragic. It's not like anything that people think today. Jesus also told them that in his father's house, and I like how he says, in my father's house. This is my father's house. Not in the father's house, not in the house of God up there or wherever. He says, in my Father's house. Again, what's he promoting here? His deity, his sonship, his messiahship in my Father's house. Not in the house, not in that house, not in a house, in my house. It's personal for Jesus. He says that in his Father's house, heaven, there are many rooms. Many rooms. Now, again, what happens in our natural thinking, our finite thinking? We think of a really, really big, nice house with a lot of rooms. Maybe we think of a really fancy hotel, the Hyatt in San Francisco. Again, that's not the way to think of this. But Jesus does say, in my Father's house there are many rooms. Now, some translations, such as the King James and the New King James, use the word mansions instead of rooms. Do you have a translation that says mansions instead of rooms? Repent and be baptized. I'm just kidding. Some of them say mansions, and I'll tell you why. It's interesting. 
This is because those translations, the King James and New King James and any other that does it, this is because they utilize wording right there in that text from the Latin Vulgate. Okay? They're utilizing, they're copying verbiage or wording in the Latin Vulgate, which translates to mean an, an apartment, uh, a mansion, or something of that nature. And so they're getting their wording, their wording from the Latin Vulgate here. The King James does it. A great bit of the King James is copied from the Vulgate. And a lot of people, the King James only crowd doesn't care to believe that because they think that it was an actual English translation that God gave, you know, King James back in England in the 1600s. It's a, it's a great translation, but I've just got to be honest, these current modern translations that we have, way more resource utilization in trans, translating them. So the ESV, superior, thank you. It is. The, the NASB, they're better, guys, they're better translations than the King James, no matter which way you spin it. But the King James has beautiful wording nonetheless, but it does use wording from the Latin Vulgate here. And, and the Latin Vulgate idea here is a castle-like home. Well, when I think of a castle, I think of a mansion, and that's the English expression. The use of mansions in English translations is unfortunate for a number of reasons, at least two. First, it it falls short of what Jesus and later John were seeking to convey. They were not trying to, Jesus was not trying to cast vision to his disciples about these huge mansions up there that are awaiting them with all of these, you know, all of these granite columns and gold. That's not what he was trying to convey. Jesus and obviously John, who scripted or who authored this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this gospel. These guys were not referring to mansions. The original intent in the original language is not mansion. So that's the first issue there. It's unfortunate that this, is, this misses the mark for English translators, particularly King James. But second, mansions supports the Western economic notion that following Jesus will lead to economic prosperity either in this life or the life to come, especially if you suffer in this life. How many people have said, well, it kind of stinks on earth here, but I'm getting a heavenly mansion someday, and I'll just work harder for Jesus now in this life so that I can make sure my mansion's bigger than yours. Prosperity gospel people use this wording all the time, mansion, 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 mansion. They want people to believe that God is mostly interested in making them physically rich, whether in this life or in the life to come. And so the idea, or the word mansions, plays right into that whole prosperity scheme. And they utilize it. They utilize it, man. They, mansions, mansions, you're getting a mansion, you're getting a mansion, so give to this church a lot. Because you're getting a mansion, give to our church a lot. If you give a lot here, your mansion will be even more glorious. You see, some people run crazy with this wording. And I just say, get it out of there. It doesn't belong there. We shouldn't be thinking about mansions. Jesus did not come to make you rich, not physically. He came to make you a trillionaire spiritually, but not physically. There's no guarantee from God that, that we will experience because we love Jesus. We're following Jesus. There's no guarantee from God that we're going to experience economic prosperity in this life. There's no guarantee. There is something that is guaranteed that you'll bear a cross, that you'll be persecuted, that you'll suffer for the name, which is the greatest badge of honor you could ever get. Those are the things guaranteed, not prosperity. Mansions plays right into that whole scheme. 
Now, the Greek verb monet, it's funny, right? Monet, I think of money. <laughs> it's literally the Greek verb for, for rooms or any of the translation there. It's, it's monet. It sounds like money. And Creflo Dollar would run with that, too. Look, the Greek, verb, the Greek verb is monet. That translates as money. Follow Jesus, you get money. Now, give some to us. But it literally is monet, M-O-N-E, with a little hyphen above the E. Monet. And it's used here. But it doesn't necessarily point to a structure or building. In other words, the word rooms doesn't necessarily mean room, a, 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 a place or a structure that you would dwell in. That's not necessarily what it means, what Monet means. It means to remain. It means to abide. Okay? In other words, it's a place that lasts forever. So the idea is that in God's dwelling place, in heaven, there is enough room for all of God's people to enter, dwell, and remain forever and ever and ever. That's what Jesus is seeking to convey. Not about a big structure that you're going to inherit or any of that. It's a place of immense beauty, as Scripture describes, that the saints, those who are in Christ, will be in forever and ever and ever and ever. And, and I'll tell you what, this is a monster-sized encouragement to these guys who are about to be chased all over Israel for the name of Jesus, who are about to be driven from homes, driven from, from towns. They're going to have no place to rest their head as their Savior had no place to rest their head. They're going to be driven from one town to another. They're going to feel like outcasts. They're going to feel like aliens and strangers in this world, and rightfully so. And guess what? Jesus is saying, yeah, that's this period, but guess what? There's a time coming where you won't be chased around where you will remain, where you will abide, and it's in my Father's house, and there's enough room there for you. One beautiful thing about heaven is that there's just no neon flashing, no vacancy sign above the gates. There's nothing like that hanging over the gates of heaven. R.C. Sproul said that God's people will be given royal suites in heaven. J.C. Ryle wrote, Our Lord's intention seems to be to comfort His disciples by the thought that nothing could cast them out of the heavenly house. They might be left alone by Him on earth. They might be even cast out of the synagogue, no doubt, because anyone who followed Jesus got kicked out of the synagogue. They, they might even be cast out of the synagogue and find no resting place or refuge on earth, but there would be always room enough for them in heaven and a house from which they would never be expelled. Ryle captures the intent of Jesus' meaning here to them. And I tell you what, I really, really, really appreciate Ryle's commentary or his insight here. I really do. Because I will tell you from personal experience, moving stinks. I can't stand moving. How many of you have moved in the last 10 years? A great number of you. How many of you have moved in the last five years? How many of you have moved like three or four times in the last five years? <laughs> my son's like, Is, can I put my hand up? We haven't moved that much. But, you know, because of God's providence, we've had to move several times. And I tell you, does it not just disrupt everything? 
Literally, if there's a hold button for life, that's what you press, right, when you start packing. All right, everyone, life is over for us for the next month. Don't call. Of course, ministry opportunities were exploding during this time, and I'm like, can somebody help us? You get a little self-centered when you're moving. But it just, it just disrupts everything, and it's really, really expensive. I mean, Jared charges his arm and leg. <laughs> Brewer moving, Woo! Big bucks. Well, Jared's probably one of the most generous, kind-hearted uh, servants of the Lord I've ever met. He's helped us just many times for the low price of $19.99. <laughs> Gives us a discount. It just does disrupt everything. And if you've ever moved, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And some moves are great, right? You're moving into a big house you bought or whatever. And, oh, that's wonderful. That's exciting, right? You know? Okay. Yeah, but, you know, maybe the market turns. You can't afford it anymore. Maybe you got sucked into one of those bad mortgages and it's a balloon deal. And next thing you know, you lose the place. Now you got to move. Well, that's not fun. It's expensive. It's disruptive. It's a total pain. I can attest to that. But in heaven, there's no moving. Like an angel comes to you, I'm sorry that uh, Joe Schmo just made it up here. We're going to have to give him your place. He's a little better saint than you. We're foreclosing on your house here. Your mansion, we're taking it from you. You didn't make your payments. This just doesn't happen there. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Our place in heaven is part of our inheritance. And the saints have a glorious inheritance. It's an incorruptible inheritance. Neither moth nor rust or anything can have any kind of effect on it. It's stored up for us in an incorruptible, perfect place. And it's protected by God Himself. In our dwelling place with God in heaven, our own abode there, whatever it may look like. Of course, it doesn't look like a normal house or a mansion, but whatever it is, it is ours. It is ours forever, and no one can take it away from us. Our place will be our place, and there will be no payments, there's no foreclosures, there's no banks to deal with, yeah, no landlords breathing down your neck, I saw the screen door, none of that, no eviction notices, no natural disasters, how wonderful will that be? People just lost their homes back east, people lose them here too because of fires and these things. None of that will happen. There's no faulty wiring. There's no smoke alarms or that dreaded thing that goes off every eight years. What is that, the carbon monoxide detector? What's that thing doing? It started screaming at me in the hallway the other day. I didn't even install it. None of that's going to be there. There's no upkeep. There's no yard to mow, nothing to edge, nothing to blow off. Your lady's not going to be in the back going, you got to do the yard finally, you know? You're not going to have to deal with the things that you're dealing with here. And it can't be taken from you. It can't be taken from you. It'll be perfect. And God shall create an even grander abode for Himself and for His people after the millennial reign of Christ. Revelation 21.1, right? The eternal kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth. And that literally is forever and ever and ever and ever. That's what Jesus is presenting to these heartbroken, near despair, saddened, mourning, broken men. And in my father's house, there are many rooms. And, and he's, he's going to be about ready to tell them here the implication of that for them. Look at 2B. 
He says this, and I love this. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Well, what we learn immediately here is that Jesus had already talked to them about this at some point and said, look, I'm leaving to prepare a place for you. He's reminding them of that fact here. If in my father's house there, there, there weren't many rooms, I mean, I would have told you if, if that weren't true. But I did tell you about it, and it is true, and I'm telling you. I mean, this literally was a gracious way of assuring the disciples that they might have confidence that what Jesus says is true. And the way that Jesus is speaking to them is just brilliant. It's, it's the tender manner of a parent speaking to his child. And we mustn't forget that Jesus called them little children just a few minutes earlier in the same conversation, the same presentation, right? In chapter 13, verse 33, I mean, he called them little children. He's, he's still speaking to them, not, not in, a, in a patronizing, condescending way, in a loving, caring way as a parent to a child. I envision uh, maybe a mother that's about to leave the house to go away on a business trip and the, the little daughter just screaming and crying because she doesn't want mama to go. And mama's saying, hey, I'm going to go and I'm going to get things set up for you and then I'm going to bring you along. It's going to be way better if I go and do this. I think that's kind of what this looks like here. These guys are just like, don't go. Well, well I got to go, little children. It's as if he had said, do not be afraid because I am leaving you. There is plenty of room for you in heaven. You will get there safe at last. If there was the least uncertainty about it, I would tell you. Have I ever broken your trust? Have I not proven to you who I am? He's just telling them, man, if there was something wrong with this whole gig or if it wasn't true, I'd tell you, man, but I'm absolutely certain about it because I've been there and I know what it is. In fact, I created it. I'm going back to it to get it ready for you. This is what he's telling them. You can rest assured that it's true, that it's reality. And one of the reasons why Jesus went away, he says, was to prepare a place for his disciples. This is the second promise. I go to prepare a place for you. That's a promise. And what is the intent of this particular promise? So that they can have these visions of great mansions up there and all the wealth they're going to have? No. Sproul says again, the key element is our comfort. Many of us love having guests in our homes and we lovingly prepare for them. We set out flowers and books we think they might like and lovingly ready a room for them. Jesus is preparing a special place for each of us. I imagine my room will be homey gothic, lined with books, and it will have a great fireplace with a trophy trout over it. <laughs> he goes, eh, maybe not. But the point is, Jesus is preparing wonderful homes for me and for you, and that brings us comfort in this troubled world, end quote. I think he puts his finger right on it. Now, we need to be warned again here, and because when we think of Jesus going to prepare a place, we think that he's got a tool belt on, and he's got a skill saw, and he's actually physically building something for us there, and he's building it to our specs, even though we haven't communicated those specs to him. But since he knows us really well, he knows what dimensions we want and what kind of fixtures we want. That, again, is... We don't want to think of it in terms of a construction project. This is not constructional. He's not building something for us there. His preparations, I think, are different than what we would anticipate. 
They're not constructional. He's not building a place for us in heaven. I, Sproul is right. I think he's preparing something. But I don't want you to think of he's decorated it to your, you know, right to your particular interests. Of course, Sproul wants a big trout hanging in there that he didn't catch. I don't know why he'd want somebody else's fish hanging above his fireplace that he didn't catch. That would just make me angry. I never caught that. I'll tell people I did, though. When did Jesus create heaven? On the first day. Genesis 1, 1, right? John 1, 1. Okay, so what does that mean? It means heaven is already built. So preparation here doesn't necessarily have to do with, I got to go up and construct your room. And some will tell you, he's building a mansion for you up there. No, he isn't. He's sitting at the right hand of God. Creation's done. Think of this. The plan to create this for you goes all the way into eternity past, and then he did it for you without you even knowing him or even being born or even anything yet. He did all that for you way back before you existed. He planned it before he actually created the world. He had the dimensions and the specs and everything already in place because he already knew you and knew what he was going to do for you way before the earth was ever even created. So the preparations are not necessarily about decor or something physical like that. Paint colors, trim, you know, the kind of trim that you would like, the kind of cabinetry. We these, are the, these are the things that we think of here. If you talk to Dennis, he'll get you a great toilet. It's not about that. The manner in which Jesus prepares a place for his people is mysterious, but I think that we can get our hands around it a little bit. Think of it like this. He enters heaven as our high priest, presenting the merit of his sacrifice for our sins. That's a preparation. He removes all barriers that sin made between us and God. That's a preparation. He appears as our proxy and representative and claims a right of entry for all his believing members. That's a preparation. He intercedes continually for us at the right hand of God and makes us always acceptable in himself, though we're unworthy in ourselves. That's a preparation. He bears our names mystically as the high priest on the palms of his hands and introduces us to the court of heaven before we get there. That's a preparation. So that when we arrive there, we shall not be in a, a strange land surrounded by unfamiliar people. We shall find that we have already been known and thought of before we get there. These are the preparations that he makes. It's as if he prepares heaven for our entry. Now again, going back to the moving idea, if your parents moved while you were a child, you can probably remember that experience, and maybe they moved a couple of times when you were a kid. And one thing that you will remember, if you were a little child and your parents moved and you were already in grade school, this is going to leave an indelible mark on you. Do you remember when you first stepped foot on that new school where you knew nobody. Tell me that wasn't one of the worst experiences of your childhood. It is terrible for children. They are plucked right out of a, a familiar environment and then placed into an unfamiliar environment with, with strangers and people they don't know. And that first day at school for a kid is very, very hard, very difficult, very challenging, very awkward. Nobody knows you, and kids stare at you, but they ignore you. 
You can even hear them whispering and snickering. Who is that? Look at his shoes. Look at her hair. <laughs> right? I remember this. My parents moved all over creation. We want to explore all of God's creation. Let's move here. Let's move here. They didn't even know God. Let's move here. Let's move here. Traveling businessman. We were everywhere. I never got to put down roots. And I remember that. Who's that guy? Look, he looks like Ralph Macchio. It was hard. Moving can be an absolute nightmare for children. But what if... And it can be difficult for us adults, too, because we move into a new community with new neighbors. We don't know anyone. Maybe you change jobs. You go into a job place where you don't know anyone. You've been hired to do a particular task, and all of your, the other fellow employees are looking at you like, what's this guy think? He thinks he's going to do something here? <laughs> I must stop him. Right? This is how people are. Going into a new place, whether you're a child or not, it can be very difficult. But what if the reverse happened? As soon as you step on campus, you're a little child, right? You go to the new school. As soon as you step on campus, kids are standing there with smiles on their faces, and they greet and welcome you. You would be like, okay, this is frightening. You're supposed to punch me. What if they called you by name? Hi, Phil. How does he know my name? You see the principal coming toward you, and he's got a big smile on his face, and his arms are open wide. And he says, I've been waiting for you. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're finally here. I'm going to take you to your classroom where your teacher and your fellow students are happily waiting for you. This is a parallel universe we're talking about here. As I said, my parents moved many times. And I tell you what, I, I didn't, wasn't a praying child, but I prayed that something like this would happen because my experience was the opposite. But can you imagine if this is really the way it played out? I'd have given anything to have that kind of experience as a kid. And according to the inerrant, infallible Word of God, this is what heaven will be like. We shall be known. We shall be welcomed. We shall be greeted by our heavenly principal, the Lord Jesus. And He will say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and he will give us our place, our royal suite. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Matthew 25, 34. That is what Jesus is preparing for us. You don't walk into there like a stranger. You walk into there and you are known and you are loved and you are greeted quite the opposite of our experiences here on earth. And the Bible says so much more about heaven. We could do a, a hundred-part sermon series on the subject and barely even scratch the surface. As Sproul said, the key element here is our comfort. That's the focus. It is comforting to know that we have a prepared place waiting for us in the abode of God, heaven. That brings me comfort. And yet it is also comforting to know that we will not have to battle our flesh in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.1 It is comforting to know that there is no death, no pain, no sadness or tears in heaven. Revelation 21.4 He will wipe them all away. 
It is comforting to know that heaven is a place of, of rest, eternal rest, Revelation 14, 13. It is comforting to know that heaven is a place of bliss, Psalm 16, 11. But I think the most comforting thing about heaven, and it's precisely what Jesus intends here, the most comforting thing about heaven is it is where believers will experience the Lord Jesus' glorious physical presence, 2 Corinthians 5.8. That's what makes heaven so tremendously wonderful. Heaven is not a place of faith. It's a place of sight. It's not about believing and trusting in the one you cannot see. It's about seeing and loving and being loved and being in His physical presence, in the presence of the one that you can see. He's there. He is there. And He bears the wounds. He is there. And that's who you'll see. And that's who you spend your eternity with. And that is absolutely the cherry on the top of the Sunday. And I want you to think about something. And I think many of you, if you're a believer, you can testify to this. But if, if we as Christians, if we are comforted, think of this logically. If we are comforted by Jesus' spiritual presence through the Holy Spirit now, can anyone testify to that? That you have been comforted by Jesus' spiritual presence through the Holy Spirit in this life, even now. How many of you can honestly testify that, yes, you have totally experienced that, especially in the midst of great trouble? You've, you've experienced that. If we are comforted by His spiritual presence through the Holy Spirit now, just imagine how much more comforted we will be later on when we enter His literal physical presence. <laughs> it's almost like we're getting a taste, and there we get the full buffet. If you're comforted by His spiritual presence now, imagine how much more comforted you will be in His physical presence. That's the point Jesus is seeking to make. Verse 3, Jesus continues. He says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. These words contain another strong consolation, another comfort. Jesus tells the disciples that when he goes away, they must not think that it is forever. I'm leaving, but it's temporary. I will come again. I will take you home to be with me. Now, there is much debate over when Jesus will come and take his disciples. This has been debated for a long time. Some say that he was referring to right after his resurrection. That literally, in just a handful of days here, you know, Jesus would leave. He'd, he'd, he'd be killed, and he would, he would leave and descend down into hell and do all those things, right? And then he would come back after the resurrection, and he would take them with him. Some say that's what Jesus meant here. Well, the disciples didn't leave earth. I don't know how they're coming up with that. He certainly came back to them. He, he appeared to them after the resurrection. He showed them that he was resurrected. He stayed with them for a season. He had a dinner with them, did a bunch of things with them, went out and revealed himself to a lot of people. But he didn't take the disciples with him. Do you recall Jesus taking the disciples with him at the ascension? No, he left them. If Jesus takes them with him, we don't have the book of Acts. So this is highly improbable that this is what Jesus was referring to. He didn't 
take them after the resurrection, after he rose from the grave. He didn't take them at the ascension. I don't know where these people come up with these ideas. It's just like they don't think through things. Some say that he was referring to his spiritual coming and spiritual presence through the Holy Spirit. Like, hey, I'm coming back to you. Well, that's certainly true. But when he came back to them through spiritual presence through the Holy Spirit, do you recall the disciples being rushed away into heaven? No, they stayed and did ministry. So I don't see how this is probable. We need to understand something here. Where he says, I will come again and I will take you with me right there in the middle of three. This is a physical retrieval. This is not a spiritual retrieval. This is Jesus saying, I will physically come back and take you with me. Now, he didn't do that after the resurrection. He didn't do that at the ascension. He didn't do that when the Spirit came and brought his spiritual presence to his people, right, on Pentecost. He didn't do it then. And some say that Jesus was referring to how Jesus comes to retrieve his people when they die. Now, this seems somewhat probable, but does the Bible support this theology? I don't think so. Scripture says Jesus is physically at the right hand of the Father. Acts 7.55, Romans 8.34, Colossians 3.1, Hebrews 1.3. And it's just a plethora of Scripture that says exactly where Jesus is physically. According to my understanding, He will remain there at the right hand of the Father until the second coming. And you can look that up in Luke 22.69, Matthew 24.30. Okay, so, so Jesus does not physically come down and take our spirit to be with Him up there when we pass away. In other words, when a believer dies, their soul doesn't float around waiting for Jesus to physically come and get it. That's not how it works. Although you've seen in the movies, that's what happens. The guy's on the operating table, his soul's hovering above his body. Come get me or something. Call an Uber. It's utterly ridiculous. It's Hollywood. No, it says when the believer falls asleep, it doesn't even call it death. When a believer falls asleep... His spirit, his soul, what? Immediately goes to Jesus' presence in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.8. Jesus doesn't physically come down and get us. Our soul goes up to him. That old hymn, I'll fly away, describes it right on the money. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. I just totally chalked the song, but you get the point. The idea of your soul flying to Jesus. It's not like a winged beast. It just leaves and goes to be in His presence. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. J.C. Ryle and MacArthur say that Jesus was referring to the rapture of the church. That's what He was pointing to. That's when He physically comes to get the disciples and everyone else. It's that future moment. When Jesus will appear in the clouds and summons His people, He will resurrect those who have died. Their bodies will be rejoined with their souls. He will gather all of His people to Himself in the clouds, and He will turn and take them to safety in heaven before He unleashes God's judgment upon the inhabitants of the earth. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17. There's other verses that support it. This view seems to fit the text best. That's the physical coming of Jesus. The second coming is the physical coming of Jesus when he will retrieve all of his people and bring with him the souls of those who are in heaven and the bodies will be joined together. Their bodies will be joined with their souls. They will be made one again, glorified bodies. The whole church is together with Jesus. That is the retrieval. I will come again and will take you to myself. That's what Jesus is saying. 
In the New Testament, there are 318 allusions or direct references to the fact that Jesus is going to return to take us to be with him personally. 318. And this is to be a great comfort to our souls, to know that he has not left us here permanently. And even when we pass away, our soul goes to be with him, our body goes into the ground, but when he returns, our body will be raised and joined glorified with our soul. We will become a whole person again, and we will remain in his presence and come and reign with him during his kingdom and then on into the eternal kingdom, the new heavens and earth. This is what Jesus is saying. What a comfort to know that He's coming for us. Even if our soul is with Him, what a comfort it is to know that these bodies, though they die, will be raised imperishable and rejoined with our soul. Though we live in a world of trouble and tribulation, we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13. If we die, if we fall asleep before the rapture, our souls will fly to the bosom of our Lord who is in heaven, and He will give us our prepared place, our royal suite. That's how it will work. Lastly, look at 4, verse 4. And He says, you know the way to where I am going. So He's told them where He's going. Now He says, you know the way to it. He's already described to them. He's already explained this. He's already taught them. I'd say prior to the Last Supper, Jesus had clearly communicated to his disciples where he was going to the Father, heaven, and how people can get there, right? Through faith, trusting in his person and work. He had illustrated these things and taught them these things over and over and over and over. But unfortunately, the disciples' hearts were so troubled over Jesus' departure, they forgot what they had been taught, and they even vocalized their perplexity in verse 5, where Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. Of course you do. We've gone over this, but you're so heartbroken, you can't remember. And we do the same thing, don't we? When calamity strikes, we become emotionally overloaded and soon forget the word of the Lord. This remarkable sentence, he says, and you know the way to where I'm going. This remarkable sentence was evidently meant to stir and cheer the disciples by reminding them of what Jesus had repeatedly told them. It was as if he had said, do not be cast down by my going away, as if you had never heard me say anything about heaven and the way to heaven. Awake from your despondency, stir up your memories. Surely you know, if you reflect a little, that I have often told you about it. He's just saying, we've already gone over this. I don't know why. You're letting yourselves go to that level. And now you you say, and and Thomas verbalizes it for the rest of the group, and now you're saying, you don't know where I came from? You don't know where I'm going? You don't know how to get there? What have I been teaching you for three years? And I tell you, the reminder he gave to them is our reminder. If we are in the midst of a difficult season, if we are going through a a terrible trial, we mustn't forget that Jesus is with us and in us spiritually through the Holy Spirit. We mustn't forget that Jesus is preparing a place for us in His Father's house in heaven. We mustn't forget something else that's not mentioned in this text, but we mustn't forget how God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. We mustn't forget the way to heaven, who it is that gets us there, 
and keeps us there. Christ alone. We mustn't forget that our greatest prize, our greatest treasure, our greatest inheritance is God Himself. And one day we shall see Him face to face. 1 John 3, 2. We mustn't forget these things in the midst of these trials. I think that's what the devil wants. He wants to pull our focus off of the truth and off of the promises. He is preparing a place. It's guaranteed. Closing. If we have not yet repented and believed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, these promises do not yet apply to us. These are promises that are for believers. You've got to understand this. And I think that for the most part, much of our culture thinks that these promises are theirs and yet they've never repented and believed because everyone gets heaven. That's an Americanism. No, there's a broad road that leads to destruction and most people are on that. The path to heaven is narrow and the gate is small. These promises are for those who have already repented, turned away from their unbelief, and turned to Christ by faith and are trusting in His work, His person and work alone for their salvation. And of course, they have the Holy Spirit and their life is bearing fruit. These promises are for them. And that's precisely, even though Thomas says in the next verse, he acts as if he doesn't know how to get to heaven or where heaven is or anything about Jesus, he's still saved. He's just despondent. He's depressed. He's heartbroken. He's about, he thinks he's about to lose his Lord. He's still a believer. It is possible to be a believer and to become so despairing that you, you forget about what's most important. It's possible. It happens to us. You don't lose your faith. You don't lose your salvation through trials. In fact, those things are meant to strengthen and build it up and mature it. But these promises here are for believers. They're for those 11 men in that room and every disciple forever. Every true disciple. But you must understand that unbelievers have promises too, but they aren't good ones. They aren't good. But the good news is, is that you can receive these promises if you obey Jesus' command to repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1.15, you can be cleansed and forgiven, restored to God. You can be saved. You can be justified by faith, these things, and this, this inheritance, these promises that we're talking about, that He's presenting to these believers, they're yours. They're yours. God is able to graciously grant sinners the gifts of repentance and faith today, he still does that. Just call upon Him. J.C. Ryle once said, The ear of the Lord Jesus is ever open to the cry of all who want mercy and grace. That is true today. There's coming a day where it won't be true, but it is true of today. You just cry out to Jesus. You ask Him for mercy and grace. You confess your sins to Him. You believe that He lived for your righteousness, that He died for your sins. You believe that He was buried to settle your account, and rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for you. That's what you must do is believe in who He said He is and what He accomplished and did. These are biblical facts. They're historical facts. You believe. Believe. 
And I would also suggest that you make a public profession of faith through water baptism. That's a good thing to do. It doesn't save you. It doesn't have to do with your salvation. It's an expression of the reality that you're already saved. Do you get dunked to show that you're dying to self to live for Christ? You're telling everyone in the room that you believe. And once you do that, you must live that out. You must live it out, and whether you get baptized or not, you live out the faith. And I would suggest you do that, and we have a tank right behind that little wall right there, and the good news is it's heated. If you are already a believer, I hope that uh, you've been comforted through Jesus' words so far. We have much more to, to cover, but that is the primary purpose of this text, is to bring you, as a believer, comfort. He's spiritually with us right here in you. He's in other believers, and He's preparing a place for us, and it is glorious and perfect and permanent. Understand this. Understand this. Develop a heavenward or a heavenly mindset. That's what you're aiming toward, not everything that's around you. This world is perishing. The Lord is compassionately concerned about His people's spiritual and emotional health. That's something we can draw from this text. These men were emotionally heartbroken. He's concerned for them. They were teetering spiritually. He's concerned for them. The concern and love and compassion that we see in this text is yours in Jesus. He feels the same way about you. And He desires to strengthen us through His spiritual presence and divine promises so that we can what? Press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3.14. Why else? That we will remain on mission and preach this glorious gospel to the nations. Amen.